This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy by Lynn Siegel. Why are we so obsessed by the pursuit of happiness? With new ways to measure contentment, we are told that we have a right to individual joy. But at what cost? In an age of increasing individualism, we have never been more alone and miserable. But what if the true nature of happiness can only be found in others? In Radical Happiness, leading feminist thinker Lynn Siegel argues that we have lost the art of radical happiness, the art of transformative, collective joy. She shows that it is only in the revolutionary potential of coming together that we can come to understand the powers of flourishing. Radical happiness is a passionate call for the rediscovery of the political and emotional joy that emerge when we learn to share our lives together. Radical Happiness, Moments of Collective Joy, by Lynn Siegel, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The housing market collapse led to mass foreclosures and brought the global economy to its knees. It inflicted widespread pain to most everyone, save for the bankers, who, as Occupy Wall Street put it, got bailed out. The rest of us, paraphrasing the rest of that chant, got sold out. But like most of capitalism's depredations, the crisis was not an equal opportunity disaster. Mass foreclosures destroyed black wealth, much of it in home equity, to an excruciatingly disproportionate degree. My guest today is Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent for The Week, where he covers politics, policy, and economics. His writing has appeared in The Washington Post, The New Republic, and The Nation. And he just published a paper called Destruction of Black Wealth During the Obama Presidency. And he did so with the quite exciting and very new People's Policy Project, a left-wing think tank founded by Matt Brunig. The paper, which is full of careful analysis and starkly clear graphs, argues that President Obama, the first black president, could have done a number of things to stop most of the foreclosure crisis that did so much to destroy black wealth. But, enthralled to Wall Street-friendly members of his administration, like Tim Geithner, he did not. I'm also going to talk with Ryan about the Republican tax deform plan, a historic act of class warfare on the part of the wealthiest Americans. Before we get rolling, real quick, we are now on track to get to 700 total supporters on Patreon.com by year's end. If you listen to the show please give us five bucks a month at patreon.com slash the dig. And if you can give more, I'll send you some left-wing books in the mail. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We need you to support the independent left-wing podcast journalism that you consume, like us. And we really, really appreciate those of you who are already doing so. Also wanted to give you a quick heads up on the next few weeks. We've got Barbara and Karen Fields, then Baskar Sunkara, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, 
Catherine Lutz, and more. So keep your eyes out for those. Okay, here's the show. Ryan Cooper, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, this, I believe, is the inaugural paper out of the People's Policy Project. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, that's correct. First one. So what is the People's Policy Project, and why do you, Matt Brunig, and others think that it's important to have a left-wing think tank? The People's Policy Project is... I would say unusually for a think tank, a kind of literal description because it gets the money from its uh, a bunch of donors, uh, small donors crowdfunded through Patreon um, who believe in the kind of ideology. I'm very familiar with the model. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, as compared to, say, you know, Brookings Institution or a statement of ideology and also of like literal mechanics, not just, you know, some uh, general affiliation or just a pretentious sounding uh, name for, you know, what people are trying to do. So it is, yeah, truly, at any rate, it is truly by and for the people. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and so, uh, you know, the problem with the regular think tanks who do a lot of good work, uh, many of them, you know, there are a lot of very good people who are toiling away in the bureaucracy of like, you know, Center for American Progress and that sort of thing is that, you know, they get money from big donors uh, generally, you know, often it's, you know, foundations, Ford Foundation, um, you know, Rockefeller Foundation, Um, and some of those, you know, are, are varying degrees of objectionable or come with, you know, ideological strings attached. Um, another, you know, another one is corporations, like for example, uh, new America foundation, they used to have this guy named Barry Lynn who did a lot of anti-monopoly stuff. And when he posted a thing on, um, new America, new America's website about how, uh, praising the decision by European regulators to fine Google for abusing its search monopoly to boost its shopping network, you know, your classic anti-competitive behavior. They it basically, turned out the higher-ups were not – the higher-ups at New America were not thrilled about that. No. Yeah. Google called – Google pulled some strings and he was fired and had to start his own think tank, which is called, I think, the Open Markets Initiative. You know, And so you're always you – know, you're making compromises in any sort of – situation one compromise you have to make a crowdfunded think tank is for now you know they don't have all that much money compared to you know <laughs> tens of millions of dollars that these you know the heavy hitters do but then you know you can just go ahead and write what, what you want write what write what is true what you know make an argument without having to bend over backwards to cater to the ideological predilections of whoever has a ton of money which is generally you know <laughs> not compatible with uh, left-wing politics and yeah, that's, uh, to put it put it mildly <laughs> exactly the final the final point is just to say that um even in the i think especially with the left left-wing space you know the 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 liberals at cap i think they could have written this paper if obama had not been president if this was pre- if this was president mccain 
who had been overseeing all this stuff, it would have been just a deluge of, of you know, this is structural racism. This is, you know, the one of the great thefts of black wealth and history. But they don't do it because, you know, they're they're on team Democratic Party and then the and the liberals who are on team Democratic Party get very, very squirrely when it comes to criticizing Obama for being in bed with the banks. And so, you know, as we've seen with Matt Iglesias's (laughs) squirreliness in response to Matt Brunig posting your report. Yep. Yep. And definitely not the only one. Well, yeah, it turns out from a uh, principled, analytical, fact-based perspective that the rapacious theft of black wealth on Wall Street's behalf is just that, regardless of which party is in the White House. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get down to the the, the report, uh, which again is titled Destruction of Black Wealth During the Obama Presidency. And I want to start with the background. So if you could briefly lay out how the housing market implosion that wrecked the entire economy took place. Many listeners um, have no doubt read tons about the fiasco and probably saw the big short, but many's knowledge of all of these sometimes really complicated policies and financial machinations is probably a little rusty since this has been this began now like a decade ago explain briefly the deregulation that took place in the 90s what wall street did with subprime mortgages as a response and securitization and credit default swaps and what happened next just to set the stage for how how the economy blew up in the first place the mechanics are very complicated and and people are you know I think have a tendency sometimes to get lost in the weeds of all these different sort of, you know, financial products. But basically, I think this, the, the fundamental story is not that complicated. Um, you know, what happened is that, that in the 90s, you have under Clinton two big spurts of financial deregulation. And um, one of the responses of that is to look for new derivatives that can be created on, you know, various, uh, sorts of assets, uh, and making new assets out of existing assets. And that's, that's, um, you know, one of the, the ways that, you know, finance has progressed for, uh, you know, a very long time. In fact, um, you know, one of the classic products of the the mortgage bubble, the the uh, collateralized debt obligation, which is you know just one one way of taking a bunch of assets and piling them up and making a new asset out of them. That's all. Th- those are all regulated back in the '30s too. So none of this stuff is really that new. But what was new in the '90s and the and the, especially at, you know after the uh, 1999 was that. You had people dusting off these old models and creating new ones basically to sell uh, derivative contracts on mortgages because mortgages are the one of the biggest uh, piles of wealth that exist anywhere in the world. You know, huge trillions and trillions in assets. 
you know, one problem they ran into, which was that, uh, you know, there's really no way in the early 2000s to expand the supply of mortgages that you can feed into this, you know, machine to create new financial assets. Uh, because, you know, by that time, you know, the mortgage market is very mature market. People don't, you know, suddenly mature meaning come, mature, meaning uh, those people who could afford one and wanted one had one by and large. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like people, th- this is the kind of thing like people get when they're, you know, just progressing through life. You know, that was the old model. You know, you get your first job, maybe you get married and then you buy a house and you get your mortgage. Then yeah, there's no like big pool of people who could, who are ready to borrow you know, $150,000 to own a house. And so they, they created a new market for mortgages with, uh, you know, the expansion of subprime mortgages, which is, you know, mortgages to people who by and large could not afford mortgages and nobody would have loaned them the money. But if you feed them, if you take, you, you originate your mortgages, basically you loan the money then you turn around and sell it into this and then um, sell it to a bank and then the bank wraps it up into this big complicated derivative thing. Which has, you, which has like a huge number of mortgages. So you're not actually yeah. – the people lose sight of the individual mortgage. It's this big package of mortgages um, in that security that a credit rating agency then performed some complicated hocus pocus on and says is AAA is all good. That's right. Yeah, you've you've created you you've gone through the process of of hiding the fact that these mortgages are totally irresponsible, and anyone with a you know a fiduciary interest and in actually loaning the money out would never have done it. You know, you're giving people like with you're get you're handing out loans with no regard to standards. You know, the p- people like towards the end they were giving out. Ninja loans for someone with no income, no job, and no assets. You know, no, it's like, how can you loan money to people that have no way of paying it back? Well, of course, you know, the, the idea is to just keep on selling these things until the music stops. And the, 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 the result was a huge run up in housing prices, um, massive expansion in subprime lending, and then eventually a, a bust, a terrible recession. Mainly, mainly the recession is probably mainly driven by the fact that residential construction, you know, which is a big source of jobs for the working class that crashed. But there's also, you know, a financial crisis happening at the same time because they've written, you know, they're these these uh, asset backed securities, these assets made up of other assets, you know, banks across the world have bought billions and billions of dollars of these things. Many of the banks are just, you know, loaded up. They haven't looked at them. And then you have the thing called the credit default swap, another financial innovation, which is basically a bet on a company, you know, a sort of insurance policy that you could that you could take out on any sort of bond or company um, to say that like. And you, and you don't have to be the owner of it. And that and that, you know, it's like being able to take out of fire insurance policy on your neighbor's house while, you know, you can see smoke coming out of the windows. (laughs) And that is exactly what happened in many cases. You know, Goldman Sachs had this notorious thing called the abacus deal, 
where they basically help John Paulson bet against this massive uh, pile of this toxic waste subprime securities and didn't tell the counterparties what they were doing, who got just massively ripped off. And Paulson made a billion dollars um, out of the deal. And, you know, Goldman got a fine after they found that it was, you know, amounted to securities fraud, but, you know, that we weren't going to look into it too carefully. Um, so at any rate, you know, big financial crisis, big crash in home values. And, you know, that, that brings you sort of to, to, to 2008 when, you know, the financial system is falling apart and then they pass the, the bank bailout, which basically just, you know, hands, hands billions of dollars of free money a lot of which came back later, but it was just like, here's cash to keep you, you know, in business for the time being. Um, they nationalized AIG, which was the biggest insurer in the country and had sold billions in those credit default swaps um, without hedging. And so they lost just gobs of money. Um, but at the same time, um, actually, you know, a block of Democrats, they, there was, if you remember, they try to pass the first bank bailout in 2008, you know, so, so, you know, end of Bush's presidency in September, they try to pass a bank. It's just like basically a blank check and there's massive popular, um, uh, backlash. And so they, it does failed. And a bunch of Republicans and Democrats sort of break yeah. from their party's establishment to vote against it initially. Yeah, that's right. And so they come back with one that's structured a lot more well responsibly than just a blank check. I mean, that was literally like a one-page bill. It was like, here's $700 billion for the, the Secretary of the Treasury. So in in the second version, it had a lot more stuff about oversight. And another thing it had was an unspecified appropriation for foreclosure relief because a block of Democrats were like, we can't vote for this turd unless there's something in it for the working class because, you know, look like, you know, Goldman Sachs is getting billions while, you know, foreclosure, what are you doing? And so, and so it's looking like Obama's going to be president to, to oversee this. So they write this really broadly worded thing that's just basically like, you know, Fannie and Freddie have just been nationalized. They have like seven trillion dollars in mortgage assets or something like that. You know, they're 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 under the cons um, the the head of the Federal Housing Finance Agency is the conservator of those two things. And they say, well, you can take some of this money. They don't say how much, but you can take some of this money we're appropriating. It's like three up to three hundred fifty billion for the first round, and then another three fifty if you come ask for it again. And you could take some of that and use it on foreclosure relief. And they specifically authorize loan uh, pr principal reductions for people's loans, interest rate reductions, and refinancing, uh, re uh, redoing the terms, and then other modifications. And it's supposed to be uh, done according to like net present value for the taxpayer. But like it's it's a it's a you know tunnel lincoln tunnel sized stipulation you know you could get an ocean liner through the thing um whatever you want to do to to, to stop foreclosures so before um, we get to how that played out lay out what's going on in the ground on the ground in terms of foreclosures foreclosures have started by 2008 they're 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 started by 
2007, I think, is when it when it really starts to ramp up, because home prices start declining in 2006. Recession strikes in the last quarter of 2007. That's when it officially into a recession. People losing their jobs. Housing prices are falling, and so people start getting foreclosed on. Um, and it really, you know, really goes into free fall in 2008 and 2009. That's when the, the recession. It's like the last quarter of 2008. Uh, the um, economy shrinking at, at 8.1% uh, annualized rate, I believe, you know, just to, I mean, much that was much steeper actually than the great depression in 29 foreclosures aren't, I mean, they're starting, but there's so much chaos in the financial markets that it's, it's really not getting going yet. Like the, the banks are trying to just not go bankrupt for the first i would say the like through 2008 beginning of 2009 that's that's like they're just sort of starting to ramp up and after the financial system is stabilized as obama takes office and he puts through the stimulus package in early 2009 then that's when the foreclosures really start getting going in terms of how the the wall street machinations that were at the root of the crisis, there's an important racism component to that story that pervades the general class exploitation that was underway. And yeah. and that's that it wasn't just that mortgage originators targeted poor people who happened to be black and couldn't afford a mortgage without subprime loans, but they actually steered middle class black people who did qualify for an ordinary mortgage towards subprime loans. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. They they uh the the subprime, you know, the the asset bubble created this massive demand for subprime mortgages. And so these banks they steered middle class black people who could have who could have uh, qualified for a regular old mortgage into these terrible uh subprime deals, you know, which have like, uh, you know, balloon rate interest things. So it's like a low intro rate or they're not, you know, they're not fully amortized. You don't pay the whole thing off for the life of the loan or even they're negative amortized. Some of them where you, you're not even paying the interest. So the, you're, you're adding to the principal and just, there is a testimony from uh, Wells Fargo whistleblowers said that they 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 steered these mud people into ghetto loans, specifically to you know to create more of these uh, asset backed securities. And the difference was big. The Center for Responsible Lending did this study, and they found that for people with a credit score of six sixty or up, so like a decent credit score, like a, like a, you know, a buyer modestly priced home sort of credit score. Uh, it was like 6.8%, I believe of white families got, uh, subprime mortgages, but it was over 20% of black families with a 660 or up credit score. And the reason was that, you know, you just, it was, they needed people to victimize and it was easy to victimize middle-class black families. One other thing that I want to dig into b briefly before we, we, we move on to how profoundly Obama failed to deal with this disaster. 
you said that you pointed out that the mortgage market was mature by the early 2000s, again, meaning that everyone who could afford and wanted a mortgage more or less had one. And then Wall Street, hungry for profits and deregulated, went after those people who couldn't afford one with subprime loans. And I just think it's important to pause and point out and emphasize that the status quo anti-inequality, that there was this inequality in place already that made this exploitation possible. And what I mean is that those poor people who could never have been exploited by Wall Street's subprime mortgages if we had had a just economy and government that had ensured people's housing needs were met. It, it Definitely what we're not trying to say uh, is that the status quo before the early 2000s in housing was good in every way. <laughs> you know, that you look at stuff like the mortgage interest, interest deduction, which is just this this awful tax subsidy where, you know, 70% of the, of the spending on it goes to the top income quintile, you know, uh, post post-war housing policy was also structurally racist. You know, government, the government would not insure mortgages in black uh, communities. And so, you know, basically locked out black families from the, uh, you know, the post-war construction of the middle class. Which is one of the key reasons that black wealth was so much behind, so far behind white wealth that even before yeah. the crisis wiped out so much of it. Yeah, and you know, in the '60s and '70s, and uh, you had various things trying to sort of remedy this to some extent. That the FHA redlining was was way scaled back. It became much easier for black families to buy homes after you know the civil rights movement. But they were still way behind in the sort of treadmill of wealth creation. And when it came, you know, they were, they were well, wealth gap was enormous before the, before the crisis. And when, um, you know, when Wall Street finally got off the chain, they looked for the easiest people to, to, to take out. And it was just, you know, the, the ones who had been, who, who had j- just barely started to get a little piece of what white people had been getting for, 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 you know, two, three generations and they're just strip mined mercilessly. Now that I've uh, led you through the weeds for about 25 minutes, I want to turn back to the heart of your report. First lay out what the scope of the destruction of black wealth was and put that in the context of the general amount of wealth that was wiped out by the foreclosure crisis and the recession generally. The big, the big picture, I think, is, is Brunig calculates using the survey of consumer finances that between 2007 and 2016, average wealth of the bottom 99% of, of people decreased by $4,500, while the top 1% over the same time period their wealth increased by $4.9 million. If you look at uh, black wealth in particular, after, um, from, from over that period, outside of housing wealth, it's recovered to where it was uh, in 2007, but, but black housing, average black housing wealth is $16,700 less than, than it was in 2007. And that even that figure, you know, 
using medians is tricky because the median family of any race owns almost no wealth. Um, but what's what's pretty fascinating is how badly uh, upper upper class, upper middle class black families got wrecked by this policy failure. And so, for example, just just like a a little picture, the top two wealth percentiles, that is to say the 99% and 100% richest like a fraction of black households in the country, they gained in wealth. But ones the ones right below them, number 97, uh, they lost $179,964 in wealth. That's the that's the the change that they saw. The 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 one the percentile right below them lost two hundred and eighty two thousand two hundred and sixty eight dollars. So you know people who are doing who were doing at least in two thousand seven very well for themselves. Some of the richest black people in the country just got crushed by this because it's you know stocks were saved but homes were not. And only the very, very richest people have stocks. Everybody else, what wealth they do have, and a lot of them have almost no wealth at all, but what wealth the middle class does have is in housing. And letting homeowners drown just meant a massive decrease in middle class wealth. The key argument of your report is that Obama had tools to stop this mass destruction of wealth that took place by way of mass foreclosures, but didn't use them. Let's start with what the government did do, beginning with the Home Affordable Mortgage Program, or HAMP. Yeah. What did homeowners in crisis get from HAMP, and how did that compare to what financial institutions got from TARP? So HAMP is a program to incentivize the mortgage secure or servicers to t- carry out loan modifications so your the servicers if we remember how all these mortgages are owned by you know they're packaged up into securities and they're often owned by you know various investors or you know absentee uh, pension funds or something like that. So servicers are there to sort of act as the accounts receivable department for these mortgages. Um, and so HAMP was going to pay, is still around actually, is paying the servicers to carry out these loan modifications according to the very complicated set of rules about who is eligible and how it's supposed to be done. Um, the problem with paying the servicers is that uh, the most effective way, the most effective loan modification is a reduction in the principal, you know, because there's a lot of people, big decline in home values. A lot of people are underwater on their mortgages. They own, they owe more on the house than it's worth. Like their house isn't even something they own on some level. They own debt and live in, yeah, that they live inside. It's, it's a it's a rental with debt, yeah, as a famous paper once put it. Um, and so a, a good modification for them would be reduction in the principal, or you could reduce the the interest rate because interest rates fell very sharply during the recession. Um, and then you could you know reschedule the payments. Uh, 
basically to get it so that p- people who are not, you know, there are some people who are definitely just going to lose their homes because they were lost their job. They don't have any money to pay. There are a lot more people who were, they, they, they lost, you know, it was like a family. One person lost a job, but not the other one. You know, they could have paid something. And so, you know, you could do these modifications and people, you know, you, you, uh, people could have, you know, paid something and stayed in their homes, but servicers are, they, they have no interest in the, the, uh, actual, you know, loan itself. They're, they're just servicing the, the paperwork basically. And so they're paid a percentage of the outstanding principal. So they have no incentive to reduce the principal. In fact, they have an incentive to not reduce the principal. Yeah. Keep it high. And then when the, when a, uh, in the sale of foreclosure, uh, usually the servicers are paid first. They're paid before the investors who own the loan. And so they, they even have, you know, an incentive to foreclose because you could get a pretty decent chunk if the, if the, you know, foreclosed house is worth anything, you know. And in fact, they may have a principle to do like the worst of all possible things, which is to string people along, uh, squeezing as many payments out of them as possible and fees and then still foreclosing. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and so basically I guess what, you know, the, the overall point is that if you have, if you own a mortgage, you know, if you're the bank and you're looking at someone who, who is having trouble making their payments, it is actually in your interest many times to work out of a deal with them because if they just walk away from the underwater mortgage, you're going to have to sell the house that's been foreclosed on and you're probably going to lose a lot of money. You know, foreclosures take a while. Houses get blighted really fast. You know, you, you could potentially lose your shirt. And so, you know, it's not crazy to think that like actual, you know, people who like a sort of savings and loan type institution would do this sort of thing. But servicers have no incentive to do any of that. And they didn't. They, 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 they carried out, you know, only a relative token number of loan modifications. Um, it was, it was, uh, you know, 2.7 million started like a 1.7 million made into permanent modification and about, I guess I remember 558,000 washed out of the program. Significant number of people, you know, redefaulted after they got their permanent modification. And, It was because, you know, I mean, this is it failed for essentially neoliberal reasons of incentive structures. You know, you're you're trying to, you know, cut your steak with a spoon sort of thing. It's like you have the wrong tool. Why would you think that this makes any sense? Well, the reason is that the administration was not they were looking at this through the lens of protecting the banks. Um. Uh, the 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 bailout inspector general uh, Neil Borofsky he witnessed Tim Geithner the secretary of the treasury tell Elizabeth Warren that the purpose of of HAMP is to foam the runway for the banks and that metaphor foam, <clears throat> the 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 banks are a you know a jet that's on fire and coming in for a crash landing and homeowners are the people to be crushed under the belly of the jet as it comes down, uh, you know, so the plane doesn't, you know, burst into flames. Um, That's way worse than even a standard foam party. <laughs> yeah. Ap- appalling. Appalling. 
But this was the lens through which the government viewed the, you know, the whole, its, its entire economic program was all about returning the, the, the finance more or less to the status quo, maybe with like, you know, Dodd-Frank, a, a more or less token reform. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that was, that was hemp. And in many cases, you know, people were blatantly abusing these, this structure of the, they were, they were violating the rules that the treasury department had set up, um, and conduct, you know, uh, uh, stringing people along to, to, and lying to them about, uh, potential modifications and stuff. That's often illegal. You know, you're, that's fraudulent to deceive someone like this, but the treasury department, department of justice never investigated any of this really. And treasury department didn't even claw back any of their, the payments that they had made to these servicers. They eventually restored all of them. They, they took some of them away for a minute and then gave them back. Let's talk about what, what would have worked and why it didn't happen. You argue a few things. You argue that a better HAMP could have saved a lot of homes, including because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac directly were under the full control of the government and owned directly trillions in mortgage assets. You also say that there could have been legislation allowing bankruptcy judges to do cram-downs, which means modifying the terms of a mortgage the way that they can modify other sorts of bad debt. And you say that the settlement, the legal settlement over mortgage fraud, uh, which I think was the robo-signing case, cases, yeah. could have taken a much harder line. And overall, you say that these measures, if they had been taken under Obama, could have stopped much of the foreclosure crisis. What could those measures have done and why didn't, why didn't Obama put them into place? So the first the first thing, as you say, was a different HAMP program. And my idea is not original. I just copied the New Deal program, which was the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Um, and this was actually in the air. Hillary Clinton, of all people, suggested that, that we should do something like this uh, in 2008. Um, and the way that that, that thing worked was it it went and bought directly purchased a bunch of troubled mortgages something like 20% of all the four uh, uh mortgage properties in the country back in the 1933 um and did the loan modifications itself things were different back then because there was no long-term uh mortgage uh, market at all. That was a creation of the New Deal. People usually had five-year loans that were often interest only, and they have a big balloon payment at the end of it with all the remaining principal. <laughs> and so they managed to to get their, to the end of their um, payment period with by avoiding foreclosure, is what I'm trying to say. So, so 80% of the people avoided foreclosures through this sort of program. Now, you would have had to do it a little bit differently. Um, in modern times, because you know uh, most people already have long-term mortgages, and so you would have had to uh, add in principal reductions because the, the New Deal uh, Homeowners Loan Corporation didn't really do this. You know, they just went for refinancing basically on a longer term. But um, you take in uh, 
debt cancellation, basically, to reduce the amount that people owe. You know, and obviously, like the the first easiest way to to do it would just be to say, whatever the market value is, you know, if you qualify for this program, you know, you can show like at least a little bit of income or something like that. We'll just write you down to whatever the market value is for your house and just delete all of that, all that uh, underwater debt, you know, and otherwise follow the general uh, program, you know, get rid of the subprime structure with the, you know, uh, 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 jacked up interest rate, set people into a low rate uh, over, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, like a usual mortgage. And you and don't bother with trying to, uh, you know, incentivize the the servicers. Just take them and do the thing yourself. You know. So the second thing would have been after uh, to to use legal leverage. So during the foreclosure crisis, because of the way that they had made all these securities, they they were slicing and dicing all these different piles of mortgages. They had in probably the large majority of cases fumbled the paperwork for the uh, mortgage note, you know, basically, you know, the proof of ownership that each time they sold it, it had been transferred correctly. And so they would go to foreclose on people who weren't, you know, who weren't paying. And uh, they would find they had no, you know, they didn't have the paperwork that you have to file in court to foreclose on somebody you know you can't foreclose on a house that you don't own you know <laughs> like that's like the basic <laughs> the entire logic of the system but so instead of doing instead of you know trying to fix it they just forged the documents they had these big floors of people entry-level employees uh, committing document fraud on an industrial scale you know uh, falsely notarizing things and personally attesting to like, you know, per, like personal knowledge of these, these vast, you know, mortgage files and just, just signing. Yeah. Just signing their name, you know, flip to the end, sign your name. Yeah. I looked at all these and move on to the next one. They're paying like 15 bucks an hour for this stuff to people to, you know, <laughs> commit serious crimes. And that all came to light in 2010 and the whole foreclosure foreclosure machine just kind of stopped because they were worried that there was going to be mass prosecutions. But instead they used the, they um, basically came up, you know, 49 states, state attorneys general plus DC and the, the uh, Department of Justice, they had this settlement, $26 billion that was, you know, supposed to go towards the mortgage relief. And then there are various other settlements like the, you know, like the, DOJ got more aggressive towards the end of the Obama presidency and they started levying these huge fines on, on, uh, you know, JP Morgan and other companies, but they all ended up being, you know, a lot, a lot less big than they looked. And, um, you know, for example, like as part of the, uh, settlement, um, the banks claimed credit for, waiving the difference between what's known as a short sale and the outstanding debt. So one way to get rid of an underwater mortgage is to sell a house. Um, and, and, you know, if it's, if it's uh, worth less than the mortgage, they call that a short sale. But, um, you know, that leaves the question of what do you do with the outstanding debt? 
because you can't pay it off probably because you don't, uh, you know, you, you didn't get enough money. You wouldn't be selling, you wouldn't be selling your underwater house if you, uh, uh, that's, that's exactly right. So there's that difference. Well, in many States it's once you sell your, your underwater home, you're free and clear from the, the, the difference there. Um, they, they call it like a non-recourse state, I believe. And so it's, you can't, the bank can't legally go after you for that outstanding debt. Well, the banks claim credit for the, the mortgage servicers and the banks are usually, you know, often part of the, the banks themselves. Um, they claim credit for $12 billion worth of those waivers in states where you can't get that money. It's illegal to do it. So, so basically $12 billion of complete bullshit. That's just absolute phantom money, you know, that they never, you know, that would have been, uh, forgiven anyway. And, you know, <laughs> it's maddening. And the, th- uh, the third angle of leverage was that it, if you have, you know, a security with these sort of flaws in it, where, where the documents have not been processed properly, then they could potentially be taxed by the income from those securities could be taxed at 100% by the federal government. Anyway, you had three different big arms that you could have twisted to say, you know, look, you're going to stop doing all of these foreclosures. We're going to force you to accept like very significant, you know, principal write downs and all this stuff that I've been talking about. You know, if they didn't, you know, they, they, they tried it, the, they potentially could have gotten wind that their earlier approach didn't didn't um, wasn't working, and uh, you know decided to go for this one because it's uh, you know it would have been a decent way to achieve a better way of of approaching the the crisis. You know, it's it's not as good as doing it yourself, but if you have the threat of prosecutions, you can even make banks do what you want, you would think. Um, but they didn't do that either. Why didn't it happen if, if the Obama administration did have all of these tools at their disposal that could have kept so many people in their homes when yeah. losing them? Why didn't he do it? Eric Holder testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee that that they worried that these banks have become too big to prosecute. And there's a great book by uh, Jesse Isinger that actually touches on a lot of this stuff. Called from, the, from, ProPub, from ProPublica. That's right. It's called The Chicken Shit Club. And it basically is all about Obama's Department of Justice and all their travesty of, of the rule of law. And, um, you know, it's a sort of complicated stew of factors. You know, these institutions are so systemically important that they worried about, you know, crashing the economy again if they were prosecuted. And also, um, you know, the, there's this creeping careerism uh, and people wanting to cash out when they go back to the private sector and not be, not have a reputation as a crusader that will harm your consulting lifestyle after you leave government. Um, various things. At any rate, they all all added up to just not really wanting to do it. At every point, the administration was primarily concerned with helping the banks for almost its entire duration. Homeowners got a couple of dribblings here and there. And in some cases, especially in 2009, 2010, uh, you know, 
you know, policy that made things worse, that actually enabled foreclosure. And uh, you know, the result was a, a massive destruction of middle class wealth, while you know the top one percent did very very well. You you end the report by asserting that the first black president did next to nothing or worse to stop the historic mass destruction of black wealth in particular and just ordinary people's wealth more generally. Why do you think that a decade after the crisis's onset that putting out this analysis remains so critical today? So two reasons. The first is just to get this all in a neat bow and a nice package because now we have the 2016 Survey of Consumer Finances data and we can see the whole progression of wealth trends during the Obama presidency. You know, the narrative stuff I've been talking about all this time is really not that much new in there, but I think it's good to just be like, here's what happened. And there's really no arguing that Obama massively screwed this up. It was, it was in terms of policy failures under his direct control, this is probably his worst one. I mean, maybe the wars, but um, it's certainly up there. And secondly, I think it's worth emphasizing that the first black president did this because, you know, a lot of a lot of liberals tend to assume that if you get someone uh, with the right identity and power, then they will automatically cater to the needs of that identity group. And what we see here is that it's just not true. You need to get the policy straight. And if you just you know, you can have a black person presiding over a neoliberal regime that destroys, uh, you know, the wealth of the black middle class and the black upper class, too. Before I let you go, the destruction of the wealth of ordinary working people and black working people in particular brings me to the issue of the very likely impending passage of the Republican tax plan, which is just this extraordinary transfer of wealth to rich people and corporations and also now a clearly telegraphed pretext to starve the beast so that they can slash safety net programs. Tell me what you've been observing about this latest iteration of class warfare and what sort of political conjuncture you see it reflecting? It's hard to see behind the curtain of these secretive billionaires who basically own the Republican Party from top to bottom. Um, But it certainly seems like you have people who have totally given up on maintaining any sort of broad popular legitimacy. They don't care that bills poll horribly. They don't care that, you know, it's not going to have any of the effects that they say it, it's going to. And uh, they don't care that it's going to, you know, core out big chunks of the, the middle class. And it seems to me like a, like a, like people who, who are some combination of resigned to get and crushed in 2018 
and people who think that they're gerrymandering will protect them from you know being swept out of control of the house and so they're just they're just doing a total smash and grab job on the state the whole society just reactionary billionaires who are just grabbing what they can get while you know and putting it in as many scams into the the tax code is possible looting and and also i would say pro, a, a non uh, <clears throat> a significant amount of pure intellectual derangement you know pe people who have been arguing with absolute shameless lies for so long that they c kind of can't even tell what's up or down anymore even if they believe their own <laughs> bullshit uh you know, pe just people who have have whose brains have been turned into into mashed potatoes by Fox News and Breitbart, um, and they just don't believe that that you know this is going to be a disaster. And then next, we're going to see an attack on Social Security and and Medicare, justified by the deficit that they're yeah. blowing up. Yeah, that 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 one I think is going to be a tough sell for them. But they're certainly going to try, you know, that there, there's a I think there's a time when that would have worked. Well, in 2011, for example, when Barack Obama was trying to get a grand bargain, he was going to trade a bunch of Social Security cuts for tax increases. And the Tea Party said no. But I think now Democrats have become they've wised up significantly. And they're and they at least are going to have no part of that. And all you got to do is peel off two Republicans, maybe only one if Doug Jones wins, uh, which, you know, I, I wouldn't completely rule out. It is pretty astounding. You know, it's it's I would I would say certainly Republicans are the most diseased major party in the in the, you know, industrialized world now. And, you know, politically, ideologically, morally, um, and it's shocking to see them going so hard for such unpopular stuff. You know, it's 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 kind of you know you see what the basic motivations are, but the extent of it is just mind blowing. So we'll see. I think the backlash is going to be really big, or at least I hope so. Let's hope so. Ryan Cooper, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ryan Cooper is a national correspondent for The Week, where he covers politics, policy, and economics. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said as he obstructed the revolving door, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. So does telling your friends. So please make propaganda on our behalf. And if you haven't already, please go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month is a huge help. Hold up. 